Hello and welcome to the Advisory Board's Weekly Briefing. Episode 24, hey, let's talk. I'm your host, Dan Diamond, editor of The Daily Briefing, writer for Vox and Forbes, and I have been sitting in this room with my friends, Rob and Rivka, for about 90 minutes, so we're all a little bit punchy. We're warmed up. We've moved from coffee to hot chocolate, though. (laughs) Yes, with marshmallows. You know their voices. Just a reminder on their titles, Rivka runs the Medical Group Strategy Council here at the Advisory Board. Rob is the leader of the Healthcare Advisory Board, also at ABC. Happy holidays. This is episode 24, which is symbolically pretty cool. We made it six months with this podcast, but this will be our last podcast of 2015, potentially the last podcast in this current iteration of the three of us as I leave for Politico in the new year. What we wanted to do with this final episode, it has been such a wonderful ride so far. Great feedback from listeners, from our colleagues, hoping to use this as a chance to answer some of the questions that we've been getting over the past few months and especially over the past week or so. And just a regular reminder, you can find the podcast by going to advisory.com slash podcast. You can look for us on iTunes as well, weekly briefing or on Twitter, weekly underscore briefing. Okay, are we ready to answer some questions? Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Let's go to question number one. Hey, Dan, Rob, and Rivka. It's Bijan Salahizadeh from Navimed Capital here in D.C. First of all, I want to thank you guys for producing such a great um, and in-depth must-listen podcast every week. So here's my question. Uh, we've heard over many of your episodes that value-based payment and alternative payment models are coming. But in reality, do you think that's a five-year march to the end of fee-for-service or a 30-year battle to, the, to get to the end of fee-for-service medicine? feels like a lot of people in the system don't actually want to see the end of fee-for-service. Curious if you guys think that in, in, expectations are overly inflated for the end of fee-for-service. Thanks again, guys. Have a great holiday, and uh, I love listening to your podcast. Great question, and I can think of no better person to answer it than you, Rob. This is right in your wheelhouse. Sure. Happy to jump in. So I think the answer is yes and no. So we talked last week about how one of the big stories from 2015 is CMS's commitment to payment transformation and how in January, Secretary Burwell created this clear timeline for the transition that by 2018, 50% of Medicare's payments will be flowing through these alternative payment models, things like bundled payments and shared savings and capitation. So that's the yes of it. Medicare is moving in this direction pretty quickly. The less clear answer, though, is on what's happening in the private sector, with commercial payers, with employers. In some areas, we're seeing lots of interest. In others, though, not so much. So it's really market by market. So I look at some places like in Massachusetts, where Blue Cross Blue Shield um, has been an early proponent of population health with their alternative quality contract, or AQC. That's been moving the needle very quickly for providers in Massachusetts. Very different when we look at other states, though. So I think what we're likely to see is some pockets where fee-for-service is long gone, and then lots of places where providers have this murky middle where they have some risk-based payment, they have some traditional fee-for-service. Yeah, I agree. I think the question was phrased smartly, right? The question wasn't, are our alternative payment models here to stay? The question was, is fee-for-service going away? And that's why, Rob, I agree. The answer is yes and no. Yes, alternative payment models likely are here to stay, if only because Medicare has announced that it is planning to do that for half of its business within essentially three years, two years. But 
On the other hand, fee-for-service is probably not going away, at the very least because there are payers that aren't moving in this direction yet. There are providers that aren't ready to move away from fee-for-service. And even for some providers, like, for example, Advocate in Chicago, which has a very well-known risk-based contract with one of the payers there, they're not doing that for all of their book of business. And the payer isn't offering that model necessarily to its entire book of business. Um, so Massachusetts is really an exception to the rule in that there's pretty wide-scale adoption of alternative payment models, mostly because of the AQC. Um, and actually, it's not even fair to say that all of the providers or insurers in Boston have that. It's just, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that even payers that have been very proactive and aggressive at trying risk-based payment models are not necessarily looking to do that with their entire book of business in the near future. So maybe for fee-for-service going away, it's probably more like 30 years and maybe it'll never happen. So I can think of one state where it's already gone. And that's one of the other M states, Maryland. And we talked about this in depth a few episodes ago. But with the all-payer system and and global budget, uh, fee-for-service is a thing of the past to uh, our colleagues up in Maryland. But is that going to stick? I mean, do we think that let's say we roll the film forward five, 10 years, are Maryland providers going to feel burned the way folks did in the 90s after a wide scale move away from fee-for-service medicine or payment? Maryland's such an unusual case because there were four states 30, 40 years ago that tried to adopt this all-payer rate setting. Maryland was the only state that stuck with it. So maybe it's something in the water there that allows hospitals <laughs> something, in the, something in the bay <laughs> there probably is something in the bay which healthcare providers in maryland need to occasionally treat but no i mean we're all maryland residents and, and we're probably a little bit biased but when you think about the healthcare tradition in the state from hopkins to some of the other various factors that cms is located in mm-hmm. in maryland so it's positioned in a different way than, say, a different M state, Mississippi, when it comes to doing transformation because it's already on the vanguard of so many interesting and different things. And the way that Maryland was able to get away with killing fee-for-service, or or at least helping fee-for-service on its way out, is because of this broad commitment from state leaders. And we talked about Josh Sharfstein and even Governor O'Malley at the time, mm-hmm. putting their political will behind making this happen, in addition to CMS and the Hospital Association being game to try this too. I don't know how many states have that mix in play. I want to overthink the question for a moment and think about the difference between fee-for-service as an incentive model. We're good at overthinking. <laughs> and fee-for-service as a payment mechanic. Because you could argue that fee-for-service as a payment mechanic is actually going to be here for a long time. Because if you look at most of Medicare's ACO programs, if you look at the new Conference of Care for Joint Replacement model, they all sit on top of a fee-for-service infrastructure. So providers are still getting fee-for-service payments in those programs, but they're being held against some sort of budget, either for the episode of care or for the full year. So even as we move to more alternative payment models and risk in general, I think we're still going to see fee-for-service as the way of administering those payments because it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward, but it's all in the context of a budget. One theme I've heard over and over again from our research, from folks in the field, is that healthcare right now is in this position of the foot in two canoes, we'll say, where Yachts. <laughs> two different vehicles that are moving at different speeds and at different paces, fee-for-service being the old system that we collectively realize we should move away from because it creates inefficiency. It's not always in the best interest of the patient or best care. And then alternative payment models, which theoretically and and somewhat in, in practice have been worn out to be better for efficiency and quality, but it's hard to push people totally into those systems when they're not prepared. And that's one reason why there is this kind of 
dual approach with hospitals and providers having one foot in the fee-for-service world, one foot in the alternative payment world. But that is like a tenuous position to be in. And when you think about the metaphor, because it actually is, is relevant here, a person, a provider, a hospital probably shouldn't have a foot in two boats for too long. So when does this... How long can this last is what you're trying to ask. Yeah, exactly. Right. How long can this last? Well, I think I agree with you. It is a it is a an unstable position to be in, but I think it's actually quite likely that most providers in most markets are going to be in this position for a long time because again, we're still trying to figure out as an industry whether alternative payment models work as a category, which alternative payment models are going to yield the best returns on quality, on outcomes, on costs for patients and for the, you know, practitioners as well. So, we're we're in this moment where alternative payment models are gaining steam, but we're still just in this experimentation phase. I mean, we were talking about Maryland before. We don't know whether Maryland is going to like its own system five years from now. Maybe Maryland will say, you know what, we got to roll back the clock. This was not a good idea. Or we weren't quite ready to take this big of a step this quickly. So who knows, right? I, I think, Dan, I agree with you. And I think one of the driving forces that we are seeing from both payers and hospitals and health systems is uh, is a motivation to be more stable, right? To have a, a business model that is more, that is less a foot in, in two canoes. That said, I, I don't think that, that that position is going to go away anytime Which soon. Which means hospitals and providers have to have really strong quads. They do. To they stay, do. Yeah. Knees also. Um, we got a number of voicemail questions, but also some emailed and tweeted at us too. So I think, Riv, can you read one of the questions that we got? Sure. This question comes from Richard Hone, and it is, our research group found that surgical costs increase with safety net burden at AMCs, independent of patient characteristics, and concluded that safety net AMCs have increased overhead and efficient system inefficient systems because they must maintain a broad array of services and are poorly reimbursed. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the ethical and mission-driven considerations of hospitals like these and how they fit into the evolving business of healthcare. This one hit real close to home. I think we talk, I mean, Rob, certainly I know from your work on Hospital of the Future, you've had a lot of these conversations. We, from the medical group perspective, are often talking about mission considerations of remaining sort of structured the way for, the way hospitals and health systems have historically been structured with a very broad array of services across the entire continuum. And if we're talking about instability, this, again, is a very tenuous position in which hospitals and health systems find themselves. Well, I also think it's interesting to, to think about how the role of the AMC or academic medical center has evolved. If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, it might have been just an AMC as kind of that, that standalone entity. We're seeing AMCs more and more also have community hospitals as part of their health system. So I think about a lot of the, the kind of most notable AMCs in the country, some of the best name organizations, all have networks of community hospitals. So they are running big entities that have a lot of the same challenges and benefits, though, of, of community hospitals. And I've heard of organizations, for example, thinking about how do they use their different facilities to make sure that they are treating patients in the most cost-effective way. And that might mean by delivering more surgery in some of the community hospitals rather than the downtown AMC. Yeah, maybe just to put a little bit of context here, the thing we often talk about with AMCs, and I think the thing that they that keeps them awake at night, that keeps executives of AMCs awake at night, is that on one hand, communities need these AMCs. They rely on them for some of the most complex, difficult, expensive to treat conditions or procedures that other, that community hospitals or even just 
you know, a standard hospital in the suburbs may not be equipped. They may not have the residents who go through extensive trainings to be able to do these highly specialized, highly complex procedures. And so just, you know, from a market perspective, we need AMCs to do these procedures that no other hospital is equipped to do. And that's not to mention all of the training and residency programs and research that many AMCs do, and that is an essential part of their business. But if you were to look at the the health and profit from a profitability perspective of their different businesses, one of which is clinical, one of which is teaching, and the last of which is research, they are radically different in terms of profitability, right? With with And the average AMC would tell you their clinical business is quite profitable, but they're teaching and research businesses struggle to get funding, struggle to maintain a healthy profit margin. And that's, I think, where this question about mission versus margin really comes into play. Well, there's we're, we're focusing a lot on the AMC component, but the other piece here, the safety net idea, mm-hmm. that sector of the hospital industry has really been taking it on the chin kind of ever since I've been in the healthcare research and, and, and writing game, but certainly in these past couple of years with, for example, Medicaid expansion being staggered in some states where Medicaid expansion didn't go through and certain hospitals were counting on elevated payment, like dish payments that may have gone away, safety net hospitals have had kind of a bumpy ride. Do you want to explain dish payments and throw a quarter in the jar? We, we still have our jargon jar out, and I'm, I'm stealing a quarter to throw a quarter back in. But it's all my money. At dish payments, point. disproportionate share hospital payments intended for hospitals that deliver a disproportionate share of uncompensated care, care to folks who can't afford to pay. And part of the deal of the Affordable Care Act was mm-hmm. that those payments would get phased out. Because due Ma- to coverage expansion, there would be less of that care to provide. Exactly. It wouldn't be as necessary. Right. The unfortunate irony for a lot of hospitals, especially in states that have a disproportionate share of uninsured patients, is that those are states that haven't had Medicaid expansion. So we talked about... Uh, few episodes ago, how Texas and Florida account for a huge share of the currently uninsured who would potentially get coverage through Medicaid if those states expanded. And one hospital in Texas, Parkland, big Mm -hmm. safety net hospital, famous safety net hospital, I think it's where John Kennedy Mm -hmm. was taken after he was shot. I was reading something in Harvard Business Review recently by one of the senior executives there. He made the point that their payer mix this was almost unbelievable to me. 48% uninsured, 30% on Medicaid. Wow. Like 80% of their patients are falling into that rubric. And Texas, which has an expanded Medicaid, if, if it did, that would make a material difference in the margins of a Parkland. But because it hasn't, they've had to figure out other ways to innovate and, and survive. Right. Well, so revisiting the question, from the from the average, let's say, community hospital or you know, non-AMC, non-safety net hospital in a market, there is, I think, a vested interest in figuring out a sustainable business model for both AMCs and safety net hospitals because it's not as though the community hospital wants to take on the burden that the AMC and the safety net hospital respectively carry. And I would put critical access hospitals sure. in that category also. Be- whole set, and I'll throw a quarter in for that one, but these are hospitals that are in geographically remote areas. They have to meet certain certain size and, and uh, distance requirements, uh, but these are social goods, right. and we need a way of making sure they can be sustainable. Right, and we as a society need a way of making sure they can be sustainable, but also, remember, the hospital industry does, because again, if, if you don't want to take on that burden, you figure out a way for the entity that owns that burden, whether it's critical access, safety net, AMC, to continue doing that in a sustainable way. A project that I'm going to be working on in the the new year, and I I think you guys Mm -hmm. know this, is on big city hospitals and what they are doing to support 
community health, population health, especially these big safety net AMCs with potentially a very poor and, and poorly health uh, neighborhood or around them. So I suppose if anyone's listening and has research or tips on that, I, I would love to get them. Let's move on to our next question. We're going to go back to the phones for this one. It's Ethan Weiss calling from San Francisco of the podcast. Okay, here's my question. Uh, it's for the three of you. In your research, personal experience, conversations with friends or family or leaders in the healthcare industry, what in your mind are the three biggest unsolved problems in healthcare? And I'd say for, bo- for bonus points, I'd love to know the answer for each of you for at least the top one to two from the perspective of A patients, B physicians, C hospitals, and D payers. So again, biggest unsolved problems in healthcare, bonus points from the perspective of each of patients, physicians, hospitals, or payers. Okay, can't wait to hear it, bye. One problem that I think the healthcare industry has yet to figure out relating to patients, less a problem that patients experience, but more a problem the healthcare industry has related to patients is that we have patients who are very, very sick, who use a disproportionate amount of healthcare, given, you know, if you if you look at how much healthcare the average patient is using, there are just super utilizers at the very tippy top of that risk pyramid. So very, very sick patients who are in and out of the ED multiple times a year. And we just do not have a good answer for how to help those patients manage down their costs. There's been a ton of research in the past few years about how to manage risk for what we would call rising risk patients, so patients who are at risk of rising on that pyramid. And that is, I think, a place that is both ripe for innovation and also has gotten a lot of attention recently. But the tippy top of that pyramid, those patients who are using just way more healthcare and costing the system a lot more money than everybody else, we do not have a solution for those patients. It's it's the same problem, and it's still an unsolved problem. Well, and it's a hugely politicized one Mm -hmm. because you start getting into conversations around end-of-life planning, advanced directives, and then you very quickly hear the term death panel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. One problem that comes to mind for me is the nature of what it means to be a healthcare organization, whether a hospital or a payer, and how that is changing. So hospitals increasingly looking to keep patients out of their beds. Huge flip of the business model. Payers getting into the business of maybe pushing risk away from them and onto other organizations, which gets away from what they've been doing before. I, I think it's a solvable problem, but it's one of these big quagmires of what will healthcare look like when these fundamental organizations are forced to rethink and reshape what they do. So that's something that I, I am certainly looking forward to seeing a resolution. One reason why I think healthcare is so interesting right now, because this transformation isn't just payment transformation or clinical transformation, it's structural transformation mm-hmm. of what these organizations need to do. Well, that's sort of related to the third one that, that I want to mention, and that's just the persistent fragmentation across healthcare and the fact that providers are typically independent economic agents, and they each have their own motivations. They each, frankly, have their own businesses. And we've been, and we've talked about this across several episodes, we've been seeing more consolidation, and whether that's full merger and acquisitions or partnerships and affiliations, I think a lot of the transition to risk is actually uh, a different mechanism, a financial rather than structural mechanism for trying to um, overcome fragmentation. Uh, but I think that, Dan Tyson, what you said, but I think it's a slightly different take. And I think, um, I don't know if we know exactly what is the best way to overcome that fragmentation. We've talked in the past about the tension between integration and competition and how even different sets of regulators have very different takes on those. Yeah. I mean, here's another one to add to the mix. We haven't really touched on physicians yet. I think there is 
a large, and maybe it's a burgeoning problem, we probably haven't even seen the worst effects of it yet when it comes to how burnt out physicians are by the practice of medicine, how disengaged they feel by just the, the growth in, sort of crazy growth in metrics and how they're being held accountable. And we talked a little bit about this last week. I was thinking about this this morning on the way into work. I was thinking about that article that Jody Cantor wrote about Amazon and how difficult a workplace it is. And one of the reasons that she cites with plenty of data to back it up is that some of the Amazon workers, especially in fulfillment, are held against a dizzying array of metrics. And every single aspect of their performance is scrutinized on any number of uh, dimensions. And that is a very difficult that is a very difficult workplace environment. And if you just if you were to write that article about the average physician's clinical practice, it would be very easy to make that comparison. There is a dizzying array of quality metrics and cost metrics. And you know, I think if we talk to physicians, you sort of hear, Dan is freaking out, by the way. He well, wants to weigh in here so I, badly. Because I think there is a difference between evaluating someone for getting the package of Barbies to someone on time and dealing with someone's care Herein and Herein lies the problem. Right. Herein lies the problem. Doctors should be evaluated on lots of things. What those things are, I'm not sure we know what the right answer is yet. Well, but wait, Dan, you're making a point that can go in two different directions, right? That fulfillment is a fairly commoditized thing. It doesn't have a lot of room for creativity. And I, I think there is a case to be made that while, yes, we have made huge advancements in coming up with evidence-based clinical protocols, some of the best medicine in the country is still practiced by physician gut. And we we invest in building up the clinical experience and expertise of physicians for a reason. And I think that we there is, there is a strong case that we underutilize that expertise. So this was a problem that I was thinking about too. Reams of data now being generated, collected, tracked from doctors and hospitals, and almost, almost too much, right? Because it's sort of like we're panning for gold. We don't know what all this data mm -hmm. means yet. Wearable data being generated, patient satisfaction scores being factored in too. It's all important, but when everything's important, like nothing's important and it's unclear where well, providers- Well, and maybe and one of the places where physician expertise is most valuable is in sifting through the 50 field form that Epic wants it to wants the physician to fill out on a primary care visit and saying these are the things that are most important for me to focus on today. But Riv, you're ignoring one of the one of the potential damaging consequences of having uh, that much freewheeling autonomy and that's we see yeah. huge variation both in quality and cost performance across different physicians. So I think we would need to move to some form of consensus-based, evidence-based standardization. I once heard a physician executive tell me it's better to be consistent than right. I love your take on that. that. I mean, so Rob, of course, I'm not advocating to get rid of clinical protocols. They're hugely important. They've, like I said, they've made us better at meaning us as an industry, higher quality, probably lower cost by focusing on clinical protocols. That said, when's the last time you had a conversation with a physician who said, you know, I have to fill out 500 fields and those 500 fields, maybe 10 of them are relevant to the visit I'm having today. There's just, there's less room for me to use my brain. There's way more administrative work than I have the time or appetite to complete. I'm, I'm now I'm still sort of mulling over the question of is it better to be consistent than to be right? That was well, the phrase, right? Well, while you think about that, I want to channel our colleague Amanda Barra for a moment, um, who I've heard say over and over again that you need a care standard. And a care standard is not a set of order sets that you sometimes follow. It is a, it's a comprehensive strategy for how you treat a patient from determining the right eligibility to the course of treatment in the hospital stay to po efficient and effective post-discharge care, 
that you follow consistently. And, and yes, you have area for deviation as appropriate, but it's about getting physicians to figure out what is their model of care. I think about something like the proven care model at uh, Geisinger Health System, which may have gotten a lot of publicity for being one of the early private sector bundle payment programs. I think it's actually even more interesting as a care standardization program of physicians working together to figure out what's our model for how we safely and reliably deliver a cabbage procedure. I really worry about that phrase. I worry about the idea that it is better to be consistent than to be right. Because if you get to the point where you believe so strongly in a care standard that you ignore what could be better judgment, I, I'm not suggesting that we not have care standards. There's no question they are important. And I'm also not suggesting that we shirk the difficult conversations with physicians around implementing care standards against their what, what they would deem to be their better judgment. Because those care standards are often right when individual clinicians may err. I just... So what if it was, it's better to be consistent than perfect? Yes, that is that I, I completely agree with. But just to get back to the problem I was identifying, I think clinical standardization is definitely a problem in the industry, so add that one to the pile. I think we have a problem with burnout right now, and I think it's a problem whose effects we've only started to see. Let's move on to our next question, and this is another one that we had emailed in and, and been sitting on a bit. Rob, can you read this one? Uh, sure. This comes from a listener named Ted who asks us, how do publications like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, as well as local news, portray health systems, and how does that impact health systems' efforts to engage consumers? What let's let's just think so, about some of the top headlines that stick with us from recent news publications, right? So I think about it a couple of different ways. I think one, some of the systemic commentary. So I think about Stephen Brill's bitter pill article that talked about hospital pricing. Um, but then I think, on the other hand, about responses to tragedies and think about the Boston Marathon bombing and how well the Boston healthcare system responded. Yeah, and how integral they were to fast treatment for people who needed it. There, there tend to be kind of two big bucket stories that get a lot of attention. First, the investigative story, which usually does not portray hospitals or healthcare systems in the best light because it's in a newspaper's interest to break the stories that are not being told. But then the kind of face of tragedy going above and beyond, as, as you guys were just alluding to. Um, it's interesting to me the difference in kind of national media and local media. Many hospital systems have very good relationships mm -hmm. with local media, which might have a special segment where the hospital comes on TV. Um, well, is that because the human interest stories are have greater appeal at the local level than the national level? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Um, I also think it's a reality of a hospital might be the biggest employer in the town or city and then kind of commands more mental share in addition to market share. Well, so what about the second part of Ted's question about how that portrayal in the media shapes what hospitals and health systems do for consumers? Having edited the daily briefing, I know we get lots of feedback over whether we're portraying hospitals and health systems and providers fairly because it's it's human nature, right? You see something that reminds you of you in the media and you want it to be as accurate and fair as possible. And lots of representations might be those outliers. Sometimes the good organizations that have done amazing, life-changing work for the better, but more often than not, it does tend to be the bad actors, which I think give an unfair representation of, yeah. of many hospitals and health systems. And it's been a constant PR challenge for many organizations to get in front of those issues and to say, look, this is the community benefit that we did, right. or these are the special projects we're doing that don't get attention because they're not 
going to lead the nightly news, but are actually making a difference in the lives of underserved patients. Well, and if you, I don't know that this is happening due to how the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other media cover hospitals and health systems, but if you just take a quick trip to any health systems publicity and press page, you'll see all sorts of press releases like that. You know, uh, fill in the blank name of hospital gets $1 million grant to study the effects of whatever disease on our patients, or you know, build a new institute to study and help physicians better manage care. I think they're, they are trying to put out their own press about some of the work you're doing. they are doing, which, Dan, to your point, doesn't necessarily get mentioned in the media. One of the irony is if you think about what hospital physicians are doing every day, they are saving people's lives. They are diagnosing disease. They are bringing new lives into this world. And their fundamental business, I think, if it wasn't their fundamental business, this would be incredibly newsworthy, but because that's what they do day in and day out, it probably just doesn't have much of a news appeal. Mm-hmm. Let's go to another question. I'll read this one from Nate. And this is this is a tricky one too. Who's going to be president next year and what will it mean for healthcare? <laughs> so, so I'll grab this to start, which is such a cop-out answer, but it's true. We don't know yet what the next president will mean for healthcare given the uncertainty around who's going to be the next president and also what those plans actually entail. I, one of our early episodes, we talked a bit about the political landscape and how campaigns can evolve over time. And thinking back to 2008, some of the pledges that Barack Obama ran on or things that he attacked about his opponents, for example, the potential to tax health insurance, which ended up being a key tenant of the Affordable Care Act. Now it looks like that might be dropped anyway. Right. So Dan, you mean the Cadillac tax? Exactly. And then the criticism of potentially using exchanges and, and, and other different things that were kicked around but didn't actually come to pass. We're not at a stage yet where we know what a leading contender's plan would actually turn into. And it's also important to know what happens with the congressional election. Mm-hmm. So the president certainly has a lot of influence and a big bully pulpit, but uh, doesn't have unilateral power to change policy. If anything, it gets back to something that we said earlier on this podcast about the role of states and the ability of states to lead innovation and change. And that really feels like where the momentum is now. I don't think there's a lot of national appetite for ACA part two, regardless of what a politician might run on and promise. It's such a tricky issue to get into. I think that's right. And if there's anything to watch about the presidential election, it's watching some of the GOP candidates position themselves to be able to roll back pieces of the ACA if they become president, right? So I think Marco Rubio put out something that seemed to be like laying the groundwork for rolling back the ACA. We're certainly not at the point, I think any of the three of us, prepared to make a presidential uh, winner prediction or say what it would mean for healthcare. But I think the interesting stuff to watch right now is what do the policy proposals look like from the various candidates and which pieces of the ACA do they deem most vulnerable? Maybe we should make a bet off the air around who we think is going to win the nomination and, and check back in a year, see who wins that. Um, let's move on to, I think, our final question. And it's from a caller, too. Yeah, hi, this is Phil calling. I was just curious as to how you put the podcast together. Uh, you three have really great chemistry. I was wondering if you, when you were creating this, tried to get folks with different areas of ex- expertise on healthcare care uh, to come together and have this good roundtable discussion. I've been listening every week, and I think it's outstanding, so keep up the good work, and uh, hope that you can address this uh, question about how you created the podcast and how it developed as time went by. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So we actually haven't talked about this, and our memories might be a little different, but when I think about where 
the idea for the podcast came from, wasn't it because we all liked listening to podcasts uh-huh. and we all argue all the time and usually like much more viciously than we do on this podcast. Way we more. like we, we check ourselves because we're being recorded. But we would go across the street after work and and truly argue about what was happening in healthcare. Well, and also, I mean, Dan, you and I used to do the healthcare one one session for newly hired employees at the advisory board, and every once in a while we'd do a brown bag lunch where folks could ask us questions, and almost always we'd end up on different sides of issues, pretty vigorously fighting it out or duking it out in front of a bunch of ABC employees. So we thought, if it works here, maybe it'll work on the radio. And, and the crazy thing is they seem to love it. Yeah, I, yeah. I only loved it when I like could beat you, which was <laughs> not as common as I wish it was. Well, and even now we still argue about who might have, air quote, won a segment on here. Think back to the Theranos episode. I, I know I won We that. won. Obviously, oh, we, we definitely won. won. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think history has borne me out that Theranos was... And what about Shkreli being a hero? You want to stand that, by that one? That that remains to be determined. Wu-Tang <laughs> CD and all. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw in, in the wake of his arrest this week um, in the, the Borowitz report in, yes. uh, oh in, the, in, New the, in the New Yorker. Thank yeah. you. Blanking there for a moment. Um, an article talking about how his attorney has hiked his prices 5,000%. So on the And nose. even made a reference to the Wu-Tang album. Yeah. So how did we get the podcast started? We like arguing. We were friends. It should be said. We, we like each other. We, we knew that the three of us For the had most part. good chemistry. Do you chemistry. think this podcast has helped our friendship or hurt our friendship? Helped. Of oh, course absolutely. it's helped. There, there have been weeks where things were a little dicey between the three of us. Yeah, there were a few there were a few <laughs> episodes we may have walked out of here grumping at each other. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the chemistry is part of it. We had that going in. Without oversharing what goes on behind the scenes, it's worth reiterating, we don't do this alone. The wonderful production team, Bronson R. Curry, Brad Hartland, Joe Shrum, Stephen Shorter, Nate Our Smith, interns, Ray our, and Emma. Yeah, M- Emma Kellum, Ray Woods have been wonderful too. They and, keep us sane. And, and and prepared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they didn't help us with this segment, which maybe maybe is the reason why we're like very off script. Um, and it's also worth noting, the advisory board has lots of smart, wonderful, yes. talented people. And we, we are lucky to work with such an incredible group of researchers and thinkers and folks on the ground delivering healthcare change. Well, yeah. and we've been fortunate to have a few of them join us. So I think about Piper Sue, I think about Rachel Sokol, I think about Ed Hawk, who've all joined us on the show. Mm-hmm. The other thing is we do represent different perspectives. I think Rob and I are researchers. Dan tends to cover news for the advisory board, and so he has a broader perspective than we do. There are certainly perspectives that got short shrift in this podcast that you know we just we don't have. So, for example, we didn't have folks from pharma coming on and talking a little bit about how pharma uh, companies think about all the different trends and issues that we were talking about. And just one example of probably many. I know that having done a podcast, it gives me more sympathy for people who do them, which which sounds so self-serving. But when I'm like running and listening to a podcast and we all love the Slate political gab fest, it's, it's no secret that we model ourselves a bit on their format. And someone on that show might say something. And as I'm running, I'm thinking, God, you're missing this obvious point. But it's it can be tricky really when you're in the room trying to think of the point while looking at your friends and, and sort of keeping an eye on the clock. So it's... It's been a fun experience, but certainly trickier than I would have expected when we started. So, Dan, you thanked a lot of the folks who have helped us put together the podcast. And, and Rifka, I think you and I would echo those thanks. No absolutely. Uh, I want to take a moment and thank the folks who have been listening to the podcast and those who have come up to introduce themselves. Um, it's a conversation I have fortunately had over and over again, and I've had it at our Healthcare Advisory Board National Meetings. I've had it here in the office. I've had it over email and Twitter and Facebook. And someone even stopped me on the street to say hi and tell me they they were a fan of the podcast. So 
And, and was that because they that person recognized your voice? It was. They wow. someone was was walking a few steps behind me and and our colleague Ben Umansky. Um So as I've learned, we have been joining you for your commutes and your workouts, um, and that's humbling. And, and we're really honored. So thank you for. Um, listening to us for now 24 episodes. Yeah, I definitely reiterate the gratitude on both sides. I think the one other thing I'd add is that so much of the research and content we put out from the advisory board is really polished, right? We've we've written a first draft, we've thought about it, we've written a second draft, we've gotten folks to edit it for us, we've tweaked it and polished it. And the podcast is very raw. It is a much different medium and maybe one that I, I really love. I love thinking out loud and you know, pressure testing ideas with you guys. And I know that some of the episodes we've put out have had half-baked thoughts. Some of you have been nice enough to weigh in on Twitter with the little bits that we've missed. And I've really valued uh, that, both the opportunity to have those sort of raw, un unfettered conversations on the podcast, and also the opportunity to engage with so many of our listeners via Twitter about what we missed and other perspectives on the issues we're covering. Well, it's fun, but it's also terrifying. <laughs> so, I mean, Rivka, you and I both are called upon to be experts. And the reality is we are very smart about the particular things we study in day in and day out, but there are a whole lot of parts of healthcare where we're not as smart. Um, and I think for me, one of the challenges for this has been realizing that it's okay to ask a question rather than have the answer. I think one of the things that I've always admired about you is you ask such thoughtful questions. Thank you. I think the other thing I've learned is there's so much happening in healthcare, it's often hard to figure out what are the two to three things we can talk about on any given week, and the electives help us work in a little bit more. But we could have probably, and someone asked us, why didn't we do this every day? We probably could, if we had time, have an episode every day because there's that much happening, at sure. least for the past six months. I really enjoyed being able to tease out those half-baked ideas on air because those are the kinds of conversations that we would have, if not just across the street, sitting in a room and trying to figure out where a trend might be going. And it's been fun to bring a little of that to you, too. Now I'm getting sad. Dan, sad that you're leaving. <laughs> You'll have to stop by for a weekly argument session. Well, I think we should also thank Dan for his for sure. work, not only as the host of the podcast, but as the driving force between yes. starting it and the lion's share of preparation. As anyone who gets the Healthcare Advisory Board emails will know, it's been my favorite project of 2015. So Dan, thank you for being our fearless host uh, and for pulling us into this, maybe kicking and screaming at first, um, but it has been an incredible adventure with you. Here, here. It's been a pleasure. You guys have been great co-hosts. And let's close the podcast on that note. Thanks and hope to be talking with you again sometime soon.